I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. If you read the literature on hands, often penned by philosophers, you'll find that the hands are situated as a, a kind of divine spark in humanity, what distinguishes human beings from beasts and so on. And the hand is often privileged as the, in Aristotle's phrase, the instrument of instruments, the kind of key organ of the human body that can act as the, the, the medium of everything we want to do, it allows us to act on the world, to change the world, to really set us apart from all the lower creatures in the great chain of being. This is a, a kind of classical philosophical motif. But then if you just look around, you know, in everyday life, what are people doing? They're supposed to be, you know, in the courtyard drinking with their friends and talking, but actually probably more than half of the people, while they're doing that, are looking at their phones, they're tapping, they're scrolling, they're texting. They might not want to be doing this, but their hands are itching to do things with their phones. And so in that sense, one of the most obvious features of the hands is that they are part of the body that really embody our lack of control, the fact that there's something we can't master, we don't have power over. And it was that tension that I wanted to explore in the book. And one of the, um, in a way, um, one of the best examples is probably the most successful cultural product in the last 10 years, which is Disney's film Frozen. If you've seen it, you've probably seen it at least 10 times. I assume you'll have seen it because of your kids. If you haven't seen it, it's well worth watching because it's about two sisters, one of whom has got hands that turn things that they touch into ice. And the film is really about her efforts to master, to control, and then perhaps to accept that she can't fully control those ice-stealing powers, that she can't control her own hands. So you have the hands as both the points of executive action and the points where action and control fail. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you trace this kind of, um, this dual pull in, in, in lots of cinema history of, of clutching versing versus let, letting go, as the song in Frozen puts it, you know, in, in Hitchcock films, in, right, let it go, let it go. Um, but, but uh, I mean, you see it in, you know, you, know, the, you, you talk about the, 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 the archetypal kind of film moment where someone is holding someone else over the cliff and, and there's that moment, are they going to... That's genius. Uh, I've seen the film more than 10 times and I'd never made that connection. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. The, the famous song that, that, you know, Mike, 
the, the famous song, Let It Go, that my kids are constantly singing. People, I, I hear people in the street singing it, that of course that indicates an action of the hand. And that's another thread in the book, which is that the hand is traditionally in the philosophical treatment seen as an organ that grasps, that clasps, that retains, when actually it's equally an organ that lets go. And letting go is something that, that we can't take as a given. It's much more difficult to let go of an object than to grasp an object for a child. Look how difficult it is for children to build a tower. They can put one block on top of the other, but to let go of the top block is always more difficult, just as it's very difficult for a child to learn to let go of the shoelace when it's finished tying a knot. So that was one of the things that interested me in the book. And in, I mean, just to, to go back to the motif in the film of, of letting things go, I mean, it's interesting culturally because we live in a society where we're continually told that we have to let things go to, to move on. And at the same time, there's also a contemporary imperative to not let go of the past, to retain the past, to, to archive, to keep things within memory. So you have this space of contradiction. At the same time, in everyday life, we're always pushed to, to let go of things and move on. So that, you know, you, you have a job you have some pointless training exercise and you've got to show that your heart and soul are absolutely in any kind of stupid, mindless activity that your bosses tell you to do. So in the same way that if you're trying to get a job nowadays, you have to write a letter of motivation to show that you're passionate about <clears throat> the job that you probably don't want to have, that you need to have. Many years ago, privileged people would be able to work in a field that followed on from their childhood interests. Frank Lloyd Wright could build houses with his wooden building blocks and later on construct buildings. Nowadays, even people from privileged backgrounds don't really have that opportunity. It's very, very difficult for someone to move from their sources of childhood interest to a work field where they can elaborate those interests for you know obvious reasons due to changes in the economic job market. When people are engaged in a job that they don't want to do, they have to say that they're passionate about what they do. I, I don't know about the, the LRB bookshop advertising. I, I haven't looked at it, but <clears throat> I hope you don't say something. You might, like, we're passionate about books. In the old days, if you sold ice cream, you could say that our ice cream is very high quality, we use very good cream, we use top quality fruits. That, that's all gone now. Nowadays, you have to say we're passionate about ice cream. So you, you've moved from the quality of the product to the worker's relation to the product. You then meet the same person a few weeks later. They've been sacked from their job because they didn't perform well enough. They're now working for you know, some other company down the road. And they've now become equally passionate about a totally different product. So we live in a society which is structured less by the traditional rhythm of attachment and loss than a rhythm of attachment and attachment which means that loss is something that becomes more and more, more and more difficult for people to process. And that takes us back to this theme of letting go, because really there's no space to let go properly, and letting go is a complicated thing. I mean, that's, that, that's the other thing that really struck me about this book. 
now you're talking about the kind of the neoliberal job market. I mean, it, it is, I mean, it reminded me of, of the work of the young Swedish writer Carl Sederstrom, or indeed lots of Zizek. Um, I mean, it really is a quite damning critique of, or, or unraveling, a manual unraveling of, of, the, of the ideological narratives of neoliberalism. Um, you know, Apple say, by giving you all these gadgets, we're putting control of your life in your hands, quite literally, where in fact the exact opposite is true. Um, and and you make this this kind of etymological link between manus and munus, between uh, the hand and service, or perhaps we could even say servitude, you know, en enslavement. And and you point out at one point that uh, you know that it's no coincidence that this this vogue for hand-based crafts emerging, which which far from opposing, actually just doubles the kind of logic of of, of corporate brand culture, and the fact that many CEOs love you know, making little models as they decimate whole continents. <laughs> Would you perhaps you like to talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, this is something very interesting, and I think one has to be careful, because I don't mean in the book to uh, condemn in, in any way manual work, crafts, uh, and so on. But it's difficult to avoid realising that the same kind of values that people who work in crafts or, you know, both in leisure time and professionally, valorise a sense of autonomy, a work of self-improvement, creativity, time for oneself, a continuation of family and folk traditions. All these values that, that can be really important for an individual hand-brewing coffee at home, making their own chocolate and so on, are also the broadcast attitudes of the big corporations. You find exactly the same thing in, in the major corporations. You can then go on to notice that this curious fact that often those who've been responsible for the greatest acts of destruction present a public image of a very careful, focused and precise manual labour. So think the recent example, President Snow in the Hunger Games, who while destroying lives left, right and centre, is always depicted very, very carefully and gently pruning his roses in his rose garden. Or think of the way in which Chairman Mao's precision calligraphy was, was broadcast and advertised as an image of, of uh, you know, the dictator. Think of Hitler's watercolour painting. The, the, the list could go on. But you see this strange link between mass destruction and the very, very careful and gentle manual work. And, and, and this, this kind of assumes... Uh, theological proportions. I mean, you talk about Adam Smith's invisible hand, but also about Calvin's idea of manual theology. And I, I was thinking while I read your book about Kleist and his idea of puppetry as this whole kind of, yeah, theological vision of, of, of what, what, what drives reality, you know, what holds the strings that moves, moves the, the world. Or we could think of, you know, the Puritan hand from the clouds that you get in endlessly in Thomas Pynchon's novels, the kind of the hand from the sky which becomes the hand of the Nazi doctor or the rocket scientist or the... I mean, it seemed this is a... Yeah, this was a, a kind of theological book as much as it was a political one. Is that is that fair? I mean, it's interesting. In certainly the Western theological tradition, you have um, a great emphasis on God's power being perpetuated through his hands and it, it finds a kind of apotheosis in Calvin's work where God is depicted as essentially someone who can't keep his own hands idle. 
that obviously was taken up by different traditions in the late 18th, 19th century in particular as a way to enforce long working hours and low wages. The idea that if people had the opportunity to use their hands out of work, it would inevitably lead to debauchery and ruin. So the, the idea, you know, Calvin's ideas, ideas about the devil and idle hands were often used as reference points in the discourses of the propertied elite in order to actually try and argue for you know, low wages and, and, and you know, maybe one day a month off to attend church. The theological thread is, is also especially interesting because the Western church has always emphasized a set of prescriptions around the hands in, in church going, because the church has always recognized that human beings are a species that fidgets, that, 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 that can't control their hands. The classic gesture that we associate perhaps today with prayer, of, of keeping the hands folded in front of us, comes less from religion than from feudal rites, the idea of becoming a vassal of a lord. You have to place your hands together in this gesture of prayer inside the hands of your master. And that starts really in feudalism and is then perpetuated in religious ritual sometime later. The various other strands that enter into that, but that, that seems to be largely what happened. And there are also many other techniques that give rules for how we must keep our hands constrained in church. Because a church is a very dangerous place. So a lot of men and women are together under the same roof. You know, who knows what's going to happen? The two parts of the body that you have to keep, really, the most constrained are the hands and the eyes. And that's something that you find both in Christianity and in Islam to a lesser extent in Judaism. I think my favourite section in your book was, was the section on fidgeting. There's a, actually talking of microphones, there's a, there's a wonderful moment in a, in a Chris Marker film where um, Marker watches hundreds of hours of footage of Fidel Castro giving these three-hour speeches and he notices he always has about 15 microphones in front of him and while he speaks he's always adjusting them and bringing one up and down. And then he realises the CIA have watched this too and when he goes to New York to speak at the UN they make sure he's only got one mic and you see his hands flapping around, looking for these non-existent mics. And because they're not there, he completely loses his rhythm and, and, and starts faltering. You, you really go into this, this idea that, that fidgeting is not at all incidental. I mean, the, 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 that in the, the worry beads, it's not really about um, prayer. It's about fidgeting. And, and that uh, the, uh, with, with cigarettes, it's not about nicotine. It's about having something to do with your hands. And you, there's a wonderful digression, which isn't really a digression at all, into the cultural history of snuff and how people would actually... There were codified hand gestures for how you get your snuff and how you... Um, and then you, you, you make this wonderful kind of through line onto mobile phones, which you say uh, are less enablers of communication and information than vessels and mediators of bodily tension. I mean, this is really the, the idea that got me started on the book, that I was being continually called up by people writing articles about, you know, online dating, this kind of thing. And they wanted to, you know, you know, does relating to people through a screen and the internet, does that change the way we relate to others? Are our relationships more transitory, more shallow, richer, and so on? And, you know, anthropologists and social theorists have, have answered these questions very well. I didn't feel I had anything to say on that. But at the same time, it seemed to me that the most obvious feature about 
mobile technology, phones, computers, was the fact that it allowed people to keep their hands busy. I mean, that's what people do, that they can't stop touching these devices. And that led me to look at the history of hand technology, and it's a, a, a very full history. There's, there's no time, really, when people didn't have something in their hands. You have fans, gloves, snuff boxes, cigarettes... And these weren't things... Today, when, when you see these objects in, in TV dramas, you know, people will have a fan or gloves when they go to a ball or some social event. People had them all the time, and it wasn't just rich people. People at many different levels of society would have these objects in different forms. And at the time, you know, in the 15th century, in the 16th century, in the 17th century, commentators would say, what on earth is going on? Why can't people relate to each other? Why does there have to be snuff? Why does there have to be a big bowl of coffee? Why does there have to be the glove? You know, in the 16th century, gloves were so tight, people had to pull the gloves off with their teeth. You know? They'd use a fan at all times, practically never to create a current of cold air, but more as you know, like a cigarette, but it would be used to mark punctuating moments in speech. So if, if people were arguing about Brexit, they'd say, no, I think we should be in, and then the fan would open... And the fans would be used as commas, as full stops, as really a part of language. And what's fascinating to, to see is that hand technology has been there for many centuries, and it's been criticised in just the same way that we find mobiles and computers criticised today. Now, why can't people just take their hands away from these wretched objects? is unavoidable when you think... I mean, you, you talk about 2001, A Space Odyssey, and you point out, you know, in relation to tool being and at-handness, and you point out that as soon as the monkey works out that this bone or whatever is stick in his hand is a tool, the first thing he does is kill another monkey with it, and this is the kind of the beginning of modernity. Um, and then and, and you come in on this... You kind of home in on this biblical moment of Abraham's hand held above Isaac and moving away from Isaac to the goat, which for Levinas is the moment of ethics, right? That's the moment of ethical awareness. But then you, you point out, well, it's still a tool of violence. I mean, you know, for the goat. We've just transferred, transferred the violence from the sun to the goat. But then you say, but when it moves onto a block of wood, then we're dealing with craft, creation. creation. But then, I mean, then my question would be, well, is craft just uh, violence transferred, yeah. moved sideways or deferred or... That's a very good question. That passage in the book comes from Elaine Scarry, the American academic who wrote a book. It's such a good book. I haven't read all of it because it's, it's just too good. It's called The Body in Pain. So I read a little bit of the book every few weeks. I can't bear the idea of finishing it. And she's got some beautiful pages in the book about, um, about the hand and violence. And she used this example, Abraham and Isaac, the hand that would strike Isaac, obviously a hand imbued with violence, then substitute a goat, it seems to become less violent, more merciful, obviously not for the goat, then substitute a block of wood, violence becomes creation. And she makes the point that what distinguishes violence from creation, or to put it another way, what distinguishes a weapon from a tool, is the sentience of the surface which it strikes. So if you strike a sentient surface, it's violence, and if it strikes a non-sentient surface, it's a tool. I think you know, one can question that a little bit. If you think, think about a kind of cliched view of gestalt therapy. I know that it's a cliched view, so apologies to, to any practitioners here. But someone who 
is encouraged to take out their aggression towards a parent by beating a cushion, would we say that beating the cushion is an act of creation or an act of violence? I'd say it's an act of violence. Yeah. So it can't just be the, the, whether the surface is sentient or not. It has to be the question has to involve thinking about what the representation means, you know, what's going on at the level of representation in that act. That passage and that instance and the, this, this idea of the, the kind of hesitation really struck a chord to me because I've become completely obsessed of late with, with what I see as, as the kind of moment of modern writing, which is... Um, the moment in Mallarmé is a throw of the dice where, where you have this image amidst the shipwreck and, and the hand that held the, 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 the master's, the captain of the ship's hand has become redundant because he's, he's crashed. His craft has come unraveled. And as he's going down, he lifts up his hand with a dice in it to, to make this decisive, heroic, tragic act of kind of casting the dice and producing some kind of certainty amidst chaos. And at that moment, he hesitates. He, he does not throw the dice um, so that the, the, the event in that poem is him not throwing and Alan Badiou spins his whole theory of the event around that instant I mean that's, that's the central chapter of being an event um, and although you don't talk about that directly you do talk a lot about well n not so much hesitation as this idea of doing nothing with your hand. I mean, you, you talk about what you, what you call pseudo-action. So blogging, you know, liking, retweeting, all this crap we do with our hands, and you extend this to voting. Um, you see this as um, a way of seeming to do something while doing nothing. You call it the new culture of, of pseudo-action, which I found very fascinating. Yeah. I mean, pseudo-activism is a theme that Slavoj talks about in some of his recent work, and it's the idea that we live in a culture where, again, the imperative is to act, the idea that we can shape our own destiny, when at the same time, it's the very culture that denies us those possibilities, that, that encourages it, or even forces us, coerces us to do it. So you have that initial paradox as a space, of constitutive space of human action. Pseudo-activism, you know, you think you're changing the world with recycling, you think you're changing the world by voting, whereas voting becomes increasingly depoliticized so it's reduced to a simple opposition between plus and minus in a way you know i don't think we were talking earlier on about the the europe debate and i mean i think everyone i've talked to agrees that the the poverty of the political arguments is quite astounding and in the end it just boils down to a basic symbolic opposition between plus and minus linked to some very very simple ideas rather you know there's no real depth to the arguments for and against. And what we then see is how voting, which is supposed to be about dialectic, about polit real politics, is increasingly similar to the voting that we make on game shows, on reality shows, where we vote for a contestant to be in or out, which is a purely formal gesture of like or dislike, plus or minus. A regime of pseudo-activism which always keeps the big act at bay, the moment when we can really do something, take a risk that would change our lives. A lot of people imagine that something massive is going to happen which will change their lives. And, um, I think I mentioned in the book that um, when there was the last big financial crash, some of my patients were delighted who worked in the city and lost their jobs because in analysis, they'd, they'd been procrastinating for years. You know, should, should they leave their job as an as investment banker to go and work with children in Africa? You know, 
should I do this? And of course, without ever acting, when they were made redundant, it was as if the choice was made for them and they could go and work in a school and help people. So it's as if the moment of action always has to be deferred or come from the outside rather than be something, a choice, an action that's assumed by the subject as a, a real human agent. But then equally fascinating for me as a writer was, 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 uh, was the fact that you kind of... Eventually you say, well, all these things are actually writing. I mean, texting is writing. All, all, all this fidgeting, this actually... We, we, can, we can class all these activities together under the category, you know, writing, which, you know... It's kind of interesting. I mean, writing is a. But I mean, I guess this kind of goes back to the violence question as well, because for someone like you know, if we think of Derrida and his idea of writing, writing is violence. Writing is a form of violence. So maybe this goes back to you know Heidegger's idea of of, of thinking as as being something that cuts, you know, scores furrows into the soil of being. I mean, so that cutting of a surface even if it's a block, it's still a, a, a form of violence. So we've got these, I don't, I don't know what my question really is, but there's these kind of constellation of doing nothing, doing something, having agency, not having agency, violence, non-violence, that all seem to revolve around just this idea of, 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 yeah, of a hand making a mark yeah. somewhere yeah. on some surface, yeah. even if that's a black box in a Nevada desert or a cloud. Or... Yeah, absolutely. You put it very, very precisely. That there's a dimension of inscription in human behaviour. And when you see people texting, tapping on their phones, swiping, scrolling and so on, you know, you can say, well, they're communicating, they're trying to matter for other people, they're trying to be loved, you know, whatever one wants to say about it. But at the same time, think about the fact that human beings are creatures that inscribe from the walls of, of every single discovered cave on every single continent that we know to have been inhabited there are marks on the walls human beings make marks when do we make marks that perhaps don't always have to make sense it's so often when we're in a situation of listening when someone is talking to us on the phone and we're doodling when we're in a kind of boring seminar maybe while you're listening to, to this discussion this evening you know if your mind is wandering somewhere you might be doodling, making notes, making marks, sensical or nonsensical. But doesn't it open up the question of what function inscription has beyond the idea of meaning, beyond making notes to remember something? Isn't there a fundamental human activity of making marks of an, and of inscribing, which is a response simply to the experience of language, of the word as aiming and addressing us? I think this is a fundamental point and it might shed light on the generalized practice of texting scrolling swiping you know that, that you see everywhere if we see it as a form of gesture the body being involved in some act some very rudimentary act of inscription of writing of marking it's because there's no escape in today's world at least in the west from language from words that are being beamed at us in the digital age 24 7 words language messages texts image is everywhere and so maybe there's more and more of a pressure on us to turn that word into flesh you know again as christianity has recognized it's not only a religion of logos of the word it's about embodiment how the word is made flesh and, and maybe the more that what at the receiving end of language the more we feel compelled to do something with that experience of being addressed by making it 
an inscription, whether it means anything or not. I wonder, I wonder what you make of, uh, I mean, you don't talk about this directly in the, but I know you have in the past, in stealing the Mona Lisa and, and various other works, thought about contemporary visual art. Um, but, you know, as I read your book, I was thinking of, so, you know, um, Philippe Pareno's uh, automated writing hand and, and uh, uh, Douglas Gordon's one hand, you know, masculine, feminine hand and, and Smith Stewart's hand where they're fighting to write one name or, or another. I mean, it seems to be a theme that uh, comes up a lot in contemporary visual art. What, what, do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, I didn't say much about contemporary art in the book. It's something that I'm very interested in and I write a lot about elsewhere. But when the conversation got started, there was just so much that... I wanted to keep it out of the book. There's a, a few things from art history, but I just thought I don't want to just focus on what hands mean to artists. And you know, one, one could write a separate book or, or a multi-volume book on that. The hand in every art, again, as Tom's examples show very well, is in general a site of opposing forces. It's something that can't be controlled or something that is situated as an image or a symbol of control and then rapidly becomes the opposite. Yeah. So I think, you know, artists are very alert to the lack of power and the, the contradictory spaces that we inhabit today. There's a wonderful piece by Isaac Julian, The, the Long Road to Mazatlan, where he, he has a dancer just kind of almost reenact but deconstruct that hand gesture of, you know, the, the you looking at me moment of pulling the gun. And, but, and you do talk about that moment and, and endless teenagers kind of reenacting that that pull which is a, a again warhol you know i mean warhol's presley i mean that it's a kind of iconic the draw <laughs> as a as a kind of yeah, i think it's easier to kill someone if the gun is equated one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Did with a hand. And when teenagers and adults endlessly replay the you looking at me scene from Taxi Driver putting a gun, you know, they use the, the hand. They don't go and buy a toy gun to do it with generally. It's the hand that's used. And it's the same hand that's omnipresent in computer games where the premium is on killing as many people as possible with the least emotion. So emotion slows you down. Um, I, I always find this fascinating that, um, you know, where the press condemns in a completely unambiguous way any kind of um, interest in allowing people to have gun licences. You know, there's no real disagreement in the media about whether people should have guns or not in this country. Everyone agrees that they shouldn't. 
at the same time, all the papers put on their front pages the image of 007 when the next movie comes out. In other words, someone who kills a lot of people, you know, without worrying too much, especially if they're foreign, um, and who isn't allowed to carry or to use the gun. What's the, it's the usual narrative in those films that the person is told they have to hand in their gun, and then of course um, they, they find a way to get it back. Yeah. So there is that fascination and that idealization in our culture of people that can kill dispassionately. And another thing that I talk about in the book, which, which I found intriguing and quite surprising at the time, after the Charlie Hebdo murders in Paris, several of my patients would mentally rehearse in their minds the scene of the killers going into the offices and shooting all the people, always from the perspective of the killers, never from the perspective of the victims, with logistical questions. How is it possible to kill 12 people in such a short space of time? How did they rotate the guns? How did they move the gun up and down? What happened if the target moved? Exactly the kind of considerations that people might have who are playing a video game. And you could say that you know it, it's a kind of response to a trauma that you have to kind of introduce some kind of logistic to make sense of it. Or you could see it as an identification, whether conscious or not, with the killers. And I think, you know, that's again something worth recognising that in cases of serial killing or murder or terrorism, there's very often an identification with the perpetrator, however much we'd abhor what that person or those people might have done. It's interesting, the Charlie Hebdo case, because that was, I mean... There's the gun and there's the pen. In fact, lots of the cartoons afterwards showed a gun turning into a pen and a pen turning into a gun or a gun against a pen. These are both instruments of um, aggression in one way or another. But, but um, I, I found that fascinating as well, that none of your patients had dreams of being shot at and trying to escape, trying to find passages. It was always the, the, the wielding, the, the doing. Um, maybe we should open this up. Okay, so the, the, the question was that the, the, the marks on cave walls are often the marks just of hands, and, 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 and uh, the, the question was making a link to the red hand of Ulster. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I did think about. I didn't put in the book, because it's interesting. If you look at published works on hands, you'll find that they tend to come in threes. Um, someone writes a book, and they say, actually, there's so much material here, it's going to be a trilogy. I think Raymond Tallis's book on the hand is, is projected as the first of three volumes. Richard Sennett's book on, on manual labour is the first of three volumes. There's just so much material. Of course, you know, the, the founding myth of Ireland, the two brothers are going towards the shore. Who's going to get there first? One of the brothers chops off his hand and throws it and hence claims Ireland as his own. So you have an act of ownership being linked to something being handled, the hand is seen as the organ of possession, even after it's been severed from the body. So, again, it's particularly interesting. And also, you know, given Irish history, I mean, it would be ridiculous to, to, to link this in two calls away, but it, but it is a, a nice resonance, the fact that you have a conflict between two parties that founds the, 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 the actual site itself. Um, the question of hands in caves is absolutely fascinating and there's been a lot of stuff written about it everywhere you look in you know even in, you know there's, there's a conference coming out soon about ai and the poster is handprints in caves on every inhabited continent you find handprints in caves and these handprints tend to come in in two forms positive prints where the person's hand has touched uh, some kind of dye and then 
imprinted on the cave wall, and more common negative prints where a hand has been held against the wall and then the die blown over it. Yeah. And it's very interesting, these have been done in often very obscure recesses at the back of caves where it would be very, very difficult for someone to get to. So the big question is why? And there are you know, lots and lots of theories about this, some fanciful, some more convincing. What I found particularly interesting about these ideas was the fact that a French doctor in the late 50s, early 60s noticed that a very large proportion of these handprints indicated that the hands lack the terminal bone in the fingers. And hence there's the idea that many of these hands had been the subject of ritual mutilations. What hadn't occurred to him or to anyone else, and I don't know the answer to this, we, we'd need to ask a pathologist, why assume that the hands were those of a live person? Why not hypothesize that the hands were cut off and then used to stencil over or to make the positive prints. You know, a pathologist, I'm sure, could answer that question very easily by looking at the, the angles and, and the poses, the configurations of the hands, and tell us whether that was consistent with a severed hand or not. But it is interesting that these handprints not only pose the problem, you know, why did people make a handprint, firstly? Secondly, what's the difference between a positive and a negative print? What, why do you always find them together? Where you find one, you find the other. Why do the negative prints outnumber the positive ones? And thirdly, what's the significance of the absence of the terminal digits? Finally, final point, to think about these things, you know, the best kind of research, if you can't get to a cave, is, is to watch Disney movies. You watch Inside Out, when all the characters are created, joy is created, the very first thing she does is she looks at her hand. And in, in many, many cultural products, novels, films, when someone is created or recreated or comes back to life, the first thing they do, they don't do what, what people do in reality, which is look in the mirror. They look at their hands as if the hand is somehow an alien part of the body. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons why you have the handprints in the cave because the hand is a part of us that isn't entirely a part of us. In, in the Irish context, it, I just remember that in, in Finnegan's Wake, um, Joyce plays on Sinn Féiners, and he, he turns them into sinning, sinning fingers. Shin, shin, sin fingers, sin, sinning fingers. We didn't talk about masturbation. Apparently, when you told your... All of your friends invariably said, when you said, I'm writing a book about hands, they said, what, you mean masturbation? That, that, that's, that's true, but not entirely true. When my artist friends, what are you doing? What are you working on? My, and I said, oh, I'm working on a book about hands. My artist friends would invariably say, oh, great, a book about art. And my shrink friends would invariably say, oh, great, a book about masturbation. <laughs> now, um, masturbation is something interesting. In analysis, you know, people are telling you, you know, the, the, the most you know, difficult stuff, the shame, the embarrassment. They'll tell you about the thoughts about you know, killing their children, killing their wife, killing their husband, you know, all this stuff that they'd never admit anywhere else. But what they won't tell you about is masturbation. People just don't talk about it. And yet, if you go back to the start of psychoanalysis, read, read the minutes of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. It's four volumes all these guys smoking cigars in, in Freud's sitting room talking about the cases, the most frequent subject in all the discussions is masturbation. There's a lot of you know, quite elderly guys talking about, you know, is masturbation good or bad? What are the effects? And so on. You know, it makes you wonder. Now, given the importance of masturbation to psychic life and, and it, its obvious link to fantasy, you know, 
you, when someone masturbates, you have to find out what they're thinking of. People will not tell you that easily. You really have to struggle to get them to talk. And it's amazing how even within psychoanalysis, there's practically nothing written about it anymore. And when people talk about their patients, you know, in, in case presentations, they never dare really to ask their patients about their masturbatory practice. Whereas for Freud, this was a given in any serious analysis. You had to find out when and how the person masturbated and what they thought or didn't think about at the time. So there is a chapter in the book devoted to that. There was a gentleman here. The question was about the relationship between uh, the gestural, uh, gesture as, as language, which you do talk about in, in quite some detail. Yeah, that's a great question. And the last chapter of the book is devoted entirely to that question. Um, so the, the question of hands and language. Well, at one level, I talked earlier about the way in which we could see tapping and typing and scrolling as an effort to embody language, to, to make language flesh. So in that sense, there's a clear link to language. At another level, you have the importance of gesture in speech. You know, the, the, there's no documented human society in which the hands aren't used to form part of a conversation, to convey a message, to punctuate speech, to accentuate something and so on. This is absolutely everywhere. And if you look in the, the manuals of Roman rhetoric, you find that many of the arguments were stock arguments that everyone would have been familiar with. What wasn't stock, what was new to each speech, would be how the hands were used. And Quintilian claimed that just by reading the records of Cicero's orations, he could tell at what point Cicero had used the hands. Demosthenes, earlier on, would practice his speeches against, in, in front of a full-length mirror. What was more important than what he was saying, he claimed, was the language of the body. So, at that level, you have the importance of the body language as parts of communication, as speaking, as conveying. But the other side is, is equally fascinating. It's not just the hands as part of language as conveying, but it's the hands as what we need to use while we're listening that the experience of language involves speaking and listening. And I think it's almost impossible not to keep the hands engaged while we hear things, while we're in the process of listening. Most psychoanalysts do things while they're listening in silence to their patients. I don't think anyone can keep their hands entirely still. The, the, there's a very interesting bit in your book where you talk about the studies of David Efron, an anthropologist who looked at immigrants to America, and, and he would contrast Jewish immigrants with Italian immigrants and look at their hand gestures, and, and, and the way these change once they get assimilated and produce a kind of a, a, a new language of... Uh, yeah, this is amazing. I, I don't know if, if anyone here has read the book. It, it's a book which I don't think anyone really reads anymore, it was an absolute groundbreaking book. He did the research in the 1930s, and his aim at the time was to refute the, the prevailing racist theories that linked human behaviour to racial and genetic characteristics. And so, you know, it was a really brave thing for him to have done. It's an absolutely amazing book, and, and incredibly rich culturally as well. His, his, the scope of his references is extraordinary. And Efron spent his time in cafes, in bars, in restaurants, in parks, in marketplaces, in churches, in synagogues, everywhere. And he was comparing the hand gestures of European Jews and Southern Italians 
with their assimilated counterparts, with their, their compatriots who'd been living already in America, in New York, for many years. And he found that the people just off the boats used their hands in a very, very different way from the people who had already been living in the States for a decade. And he used mathematical diagrams to trace what he called the complex embroidery of human speech, that when you actually drew and tracked the hand gestures, you'd find that they mapped out in space, in different kinds of space, in some forms a spherical plane, in another something more like a trefoil knot, something that you generally more likely to find in a book about mathematics or topology than in a book about language. And he showed that there was a kind of knotting or mathematics of speech which you could access if you diagrammed what people were doing with their hands while speaking. It's a really extraordinary work. But what I would like to know, I just want to probe you a little further, and I want to know what you think the significance is of the fact that when we speak, we so often mobilize our hands as well. What do you think that that tells us about, I mean, do you think that it tells us something about the nature of language, what in fact we are doing when we are engaging in that? What does the fact that we that, that we use our hands tell us about the uh, underlying nature of language? I think the answer to that, the field is incredibly complex, but I think the answer is very simple, that language is not an abstract entity, that it's an embodied entity, that language doesn't exist without an embodiment, and that language seizes and grasps the human body from, from the very moment we start hearing things, you know, four, four or five months after conception, language is there, already shaping the movements of the human body. So I, I think you know, it shows that language isn't something abstract, it's real, and it's always embodied. It seems like you're saying something about prosthetics in terms of materialism, in terms of materialism and immaterialism, in terms of the word as immaterial or material. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, I mean, it seems like one version of the thesis of your book which I too have not read, but spent 40 minutes. Very good question. Are the, are the hands the beginning? Are the hands always already prosthesis? Yeah. That, that's a, a beautiful observation, which I entirely agree with. And, you know, it's what you see in the Disney movies where the, the newly created being gazes at their hand in wonder, in the same way that a baby very often will stare at its hands in wonder. And one of the phenomena that I come back to again and again in the book is the fact that you know, what, what babies do with their hands is just extraordinary. If, if you try and mimic what a three-week-old baby or a month-old baby is doing with their hands, it's almost impossible to do. Even someone who's been rehearsing, you know, hip-hop for years won't be able to do that stuff with their hands. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And it's as if, you know, the way that a child can, can glare at the hand, can stare fascinated at the hand all the different modalities of otherness or alienness that enters into that relation with the hand suggests that the hand is something which has to be, in a way, appropriated, I think, never entirely successfully into our bodies. I don't think we ever manage to make our hands entirely a part of our bodies. So in that sense, the hand is the beginning of, of uh, you know, the prosthetic world. The other thing that, that's fascinating, a baby feeding at the breast or at the bottle is also always doing something with its hand. If, if one hand is touching the breast or, or, or the body of the caregiver or, or the bottle, the other hand is always touching something, a blanket, a bit of their own body, the earlobe of the mother or the caregiver, 
they're, they're always rubbing, scratching, pulling, flexing, fanning. And that makes us think about, you know, why isn't sucking and swallowing enough? Why is it that as adults, we can't just watch TV or eat a meal? We have to be doing another activity at the same time. Why do most people have to eat compulsively while they watch TV? If you watch Gogglebox, this wonderful documentary about what British people do when they watch TV, you know, they're always doing something with their hands. They're always doing more than one thing. And this is, again, a question which I look at in the book. Why are forms of satisfaction hardly ever present on their own? Why do you always have one form of satisfaction linked to another? Why does a child sucking at a nipple also put its thumb into its mouth while with the other hand is touching a bit of blanket? Yeah, why do you always need more than one thing at the same time? I was thinking that when you started talking uh, from the beginning, it still hasn't left my head. That phrase, Satan makes work, but idle hands to do. My feeling is that I was brought up to be feeling guilty because I wasn't doing things with my hands. Um, everybody else was knitting or painting or carpentering and I was maybe had a book that, that um, as a child if you're doing if, if she was doing nothing with her hands she'd be made to feel guilty yeah absolutely you, you should feel guilty <laughs> about that but what, what's fascinating today is that, that modern technology digital technology legitimizes that that regime of, of you know the, the ferocious hand use you know in some in, in some areas of society, perhaps most areas of society, if you're not on Facebook or Twitter or constantly communicating, there's something wrong with you. You know, we, we have to be in touch, using our hands, you know, very, very busy texting, swiping, scrolling, and so on. So the imperative is it's kind of legitimized this incessant use of the hands. Oh, there's a view in cognitive science that you should really think about the mind in terms of a family of modules sort of semi-autonomous systems and they're, they're kind of connected and there's a sort of a loose sort of control system at the top of it. But there's a sort of semi-autonomy in all of them. And um, I'm wondering to what extent this is what the hands are about as well. That each of the, the modules to some degree does its own thing. The, there's a view in cognitive science that the mind is a kind of constellated family of, of semi-independent kind of clusters of different things. <laughs> And, uh, and so would the hand then stand for the thing that kind of brings them all up? Yeah, the manipulator. Like in everything you wanted to know about sex when they're in the control room and everyone's doing their thing and then there's a central control telling them what to do while Woody Allen's having sex with... Yeah? That, 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 kind of, that would be the hand, the, 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 the superego. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's true, but, but there's no control room. Um, but I think, you know, let's answer the question from two different perspectives. A classical pianist, a professional concert pianist, won't allow themselves to learn guitar, even if they love guitar, because they know that if they start practicing, that will influence their fingers, which will then damage the fluency of their piano playing, whether they want to or not, whether, you know, let's you know, go with the vocabulary of the central control system, you know, uh, endorsing that. It's not going to happen because of what will be learnt, you know, to use your vocabulary, that, that autonomy of the hand system. It's slightly different, though, with the kind of question that I'm looking at in the book. 
if your hands are severed and then go around killing people that have wronged you, it won't be that the hands are acting autonomously because the hands might be acting out as agents of one's unconscious desire linked to, I don't like the vocabulary of the, the, the control system, but another part of one's mind, let's say the, the unconscious, and that in itself will create something which goes against the image we might like to have of ourselves. We don't like to see ourselves perhaps as murderous or vengeful creatures, so we need the hands to be severed so we can no longer recognise them as their own and then they can go around killing people. So in that sense, you wouldn't have the hands acting autonomously. You'd have the hands really as you know, the, the agents of, of a murderous desire that we strike out of consciousness. So the division is in the control room, not between the autonomous agencies. But you do actually use a control room um, uh, scenario in your book when you talk about Dr. Strangelove which, and that scene in the control room where Peter Sellers' um, prosthetic Nazi hand keeps trying to give the, the salute and he has to use the other hand to clamp it down. I mean, that this would kind of tie in with what you're saying, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that, that pe I mean, in that film, it's something conscious, that people are divided not only at a conscious level, but the dimensions of the mind, not only that it inaccessible to consciousness, call them pre-conscious, but also profoundly unconscious, which means you know, they will never ever be able to become conscious. And you can only infer them or hypothesize about them from symptoms, from slips, maybe occasionally from dreams. So um, the accusation is that Darren's given too, too bad a press to the hand, that it's all about fidgeting and murdering, and what, what about the, the positive things that the hand can do, like touching? That was the question. Yeah. I mean, in, in the book, I'm interested in the stuff that doesn't really get talked about, you know, the, the fidgeting. I mean, in a way, there's a lot in the book that's a kind of history of fidgeting from the 15th century to today. So I'm interested in, in the stuff about the hand that, that hasn't really been widely explored. But there is a very big literature on the positive aspects of touch, you know, which is some of it's very good. I think, you know, um, Aristotle said that a human being can survive without sight without hearing but it can't survive without being touched and again if you look at the early life of babies and infants you see the extraordinary interplay of hands with the mother's body the mother's hands touching the child the child's hands touching the mother's the, the kind of play of fingers between them the tugging the pulling the rubbing on the mother's body these are all things that establish bonds of closeness, of intimacy, of sexuality between the mother and the child, which will no doubt be, you know, of great importance in, in the rest of one's life. But, you know, I think in a way that's something that, that no one could really disagree with, the importance of touch as a, you know, a primary affective relation with those that we love. But at the same time, why is it that practically every child in the world at some point will have nightmares or fears that there's a hand that grabs them from under the bed that won't let go. Yeah, It's, it's the kind of other side. Um, Tom mentioned earlier the cliffhanger scenes. You know. Has anyone here ever seen an action movie in which there isn't a scene where one person holds another person over a cliff or an abyss and pulls them to safety, very occasionally lets them go? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just in every single film. There must be a reason for that the importance of holding, of grasping, of clutching, of pulling, 
as some kind of primary index of human attachment, the difference between life and death in a way in these movies, but at the same time, the other side of the coin, the hand that grabs you from under the bed that won't let go, isn't that the same hand that won't let you go when you're on the edge of a cliff? Exactly the same gesture in one scene brings life and salvation and in the other brings terror and dread. Last question, oh, yes. I was just curious what you took out about KFC. Yeah, a lot of people ask me this. What, what did he take out about KFC? He, he, he took something out about KFC. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, yeah, my favourite paragraph in the book isn't in the book. I cut it. It's about Kentucky Fried Chicken. A lot of people have asked me this. I think I might write another book around that paragraph, so I think I, I, I'll reserve it for, for now, if that's okay. <laughs> So, we, should we have one last question? The relationship between hand and mouth, finger biting, smoking, um, thumb sucking. Yeah, again, it's a very good question. The second chapter of the book is about this. In the first six or seven months of life, there's broadly a, a kind of movement, a, a kind of change of allegiance, where the hands, which are at first really perhaps part of the oral apparatus change their allegiance to the eyes so that a child initially won't necessarily look at what he or she is holding or bringing to the mouth. Three or four months, there'll be a little delay when they start to look at things. And, I mean, it's been studied by researchers in many different traditions. At the beginning, when the mouth is sucking on something, the hand grip tightens, as if there's a correspondence between the musculature of the hand and the oral muscles involved in feeding. Um, gradually, this changes, and the hands lose, or, or we hope that they lose, their link. At the beginning of life, there's a kind of chorus or complicity between hands and mouth. The idea is that hopefully we lose that in the first six or seven months, but maybe, as you say, we never entirely lose it, and our hands are always part of the mouth. Let me just make one last point, which isn't in the book. Um, when we talk about feeding, we always imagine you know, someone sucking on the breast or the bottle, but actually feeding involves both sucking and swallowing, and the, the oral mechanics of swallowing change in the first three or four months of life. Again, this is something that puzzled me in, in, in films. You know, in, when you see a movie, you've got to always ask the question, well, what does this touch on in human experience? In these science fiction movies, there's always a scene when someone is sucked out of an airlock in gravity. In, you know, any of the, these big-budget sci-fi films nowadays, someone is suddenly pulled off into space. And obviously you can say you know, it's an image of human loneliness and abandonment and so on. But that action of suddenly being sucked out is apparently, according to, to my friends who work in that field, very close to the change in air pressure in the mouth in the first couple of months when a child is feeding. Because it's, it's due to changes in pressure that allows the milk to, to be swallowed properly. Apparently that changes a bit later on during the first year. So perhaps there we have a link to the early experience of feeding very, very far from something obvious. Thank you very much to Darren Leader and Tom McCarthy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 